I mentioned that Shane, his top salesman, used car is Ben Benson down in Spartanburg, and I'd like to dedicate this to, to you, Shane. My husband went to the chief of police and he said, My wife is missing. She went shopping yesterday and she has not come home. And the sheriff said, What was her height? And her husband said, Well, I'm not sure. A little over five feet. And the sheriff said, What's her weight? Well, I don't know. Not slim, not really fat. What are the color of her eyes? Kind of brown, I think. But never really noticed. What about the color of her hair? Hair changes color, color a couple times a year. Maybe dark brown now, and I can't remember. Uh, what was she wearing? Well, it could have been pants, maybe a skirt. I really don't know exactly. What kind of a car did she drive? She went in my truck. What kind of a truck was it? A 2016 Pearl White Ram Limited 4x4 with a heavy V8 engine ordered with a Ram box near the and a first option LED lighting, backup front camera, moose hide leather, heated and cooled seats, climate controlled air conditioning. He has a custom matching white cover for the bed, weather tech floor mats, trailing package with a gold hitch, sunroof, six cup holders, three USB ports, four power outlets. I had a special Ally wheels and off-road toil tires. They had custom retracting run boards and undergo real well lighting. And at this point, the husband started choking up and the sheriff said, take it easy, sir. We'll find your truck. <laughs> <laughs> I have been representing you since 2000, year 2000. And we've had a lot of things going by. And I always get excited when I come to give a report because we're talking about what God is doing in the Spanish speaking world. And I'm here to report that we continue on with the crusade ministry, seeing lots of souls saved. And we continue on with the radio ministry. Back in 1959, no, 1964, I launched our daily Spanish broadcast, Impacto. And uh, I have a, a list of the countries where we broadcast. We broadcast over 300 stations, 310 stations in 22 countries. And I'm going to give the name of the countries in Spanish, and you will repeat in English. Okay? First one is Argentina, Uruguay, Costa Rica, Puerto Rico, Honduras, Ecuador, Nicaragua. Guatemala, Guinea Equatorial. That's an African country called Equatorial Guinea. Uh, and they speak Spanish there in Central Africa. Next one, La República Dominicana. Panama, Bolivia, Mexico, Venezuela, Los Estados Unidos de North America. The United States, Belize, Colombia, Paraguay, Peru, Chile, Aruba, España, 
and El Salvador. Same thing, which means the savior. Kind of a nice country. Yeah, it is. Okay, well, um, I'm here today to talk to you about basket cases. <laughs> First of all, let's read it. If you have your Bibles, you can turn with me. I'm reading from Exodus, Exodus 1, Exodus chapter 1, verses 22 to 2-8. Exodus chapter 1, I'll read it. Then Pharaoh gave his order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile River. Incidentally, the Nile River is the longest river on earth. So throw the boy into the river, but let every girl live. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant. He gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with pop tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the river Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she said. And the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I, I drew him out of the water. You know, Pharaoh's daughter, without knowing it, she became a separate spiritual mother. We all have responsibilities in life, and hopefully our premier responsibility is that of being a spiritual mother or a spiritual father. And if that's the case, we never know what sort of God's going to put in our hands. We never know what's going to put in our basket. Pharaoh's daughter had no idea what was in that basket. She never knew that the greatest part of God's history for mankind was in that basket. Moses. I think that's a that teacher at school, she asked, she asked everybody, who was the greatest man on earth? And a, a Jewish boy raised his hand and he said, Jesus Christ. She said, good, very good. I'll give you $5. And he whispered to his buddy, I knew that Moses was the greatest, but money is money. And I got my $5. Moses. Pharaoh's daughter never knew that the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were in that basket. She never knew that the basket contained the person who would cause the very Pharaoh's empire to fall. She didn't know. She had no idea. She didn't know that in that basket was the man whose staff would bring ten plagues upon Egypt and would lead the people of Egypt to miraculously cross the Red Sea. I think of a, there was a conservative young man who went to a liberal theological school. And when they 
professor was talking about people visual crossing the Red Sea, and really, that's easily explained. There was no miracle. There was only about six inches of water in the Red Sea during that time. And the, and the boy, the conservative lay, boy in the student said in the, in the back seat, he said, amen. And the professor said, wait a minute, that was no miracle. Why the amen? He said, oh, I'm just so happy that Pharaoh's army drowned in only six inches of the water. <laughs> <laughs> I want to tell you about another boy in his classroom. Jesus was preaching. And a little boy arrived with his little lunch basket. And there were thousands listening. And the, the people became hungry because Christ had a long, had a long sermon that, that day. And so he said to his disciples, look around, see if you can find some food. And they found that, found that boy with the five loaves and two fishes in his basket. And they said, give us your basket. You can imagine what the boy thought. He said, wait a minute, my mom prohibited that basket lunch for me. What are you going to do with it? It sounds like a fishy thing to me. And he watched in awe as he saw Christ break the bread. And from the five loaves and two fishes, feed thousands and thousands of people. I'm sure that boy never, never, never forget that. I'm sure he told it to his grandparents. We never know what God has placed in our basket. So we have to be careful of that. That's right. There was a man named Paul. First he was Saul, then Paul. And he breathed hatred and hatred and threats to the entire Christian population. He was plagued with fanatism. He wanted to kill all the Christians. This was Paul. Paul was a very difficult person. When God wanted to save Peter, he used his brother Andrew. And when Paul wanted when Christ wanted to save Nathan, he used Philip. But when it came to Paul, there was no one who could do the job. So you know the story about how Christ himself appeared to Paul at the Damascus Road. And from that moment, Paul's life was changed. He stopped persecuting the Christians. He started following Christ. It was a marvelous, marvelous transformation in his life. Well, some of the Christians believed that that was true. But many thought it was a smokescreen and said, he's just doing this to fool us. He wants to get nicer so he can kill us or thrown into jail. And they thought, he's going to try to seduce us. So they decided to kill Paul. And they swore by oath to kill him. And so they controlled to the, go to the city by day and by night. And so the Christian brethren who were really had confidence in Paul heard about this plot to kill him. And so they took a hold of Paul and they put him in a big basket, much bigger than this one. They lowered them with a rope over the city wall, 36 feet high. While Paul was being lowered in this basket, can you imagine what was going on in the mind of some of these Jews who were lowering him? I'm sure there was someone who said, wait a minute. We don't know what we had in the basket. We don't know if he was really a true Christian. Maybe we should let him drop. And others were saying, no, no, no. Much carrier and lowering him. Who knows what we have in this basket? And you can think of what Paul was thinking. He was thinking, I came to kill these people. Now they're protecting me. They're lowering me in this basket. They're saving my very, very, very life. And they didn't know what they had in that basket. They didn't know that 14 epistles of the New Testament were in that basket. It's fantastic. 
He didn't know that this was a great champion who shaped the very empire of Caesar. He was in a basket. It was a tremendous day when they lowered him in that, that basket. Don't ever let us despise what God has placed in our basket. We never know. We never. And when Paul arrived in, in Jerusalem, he heard the Christians singing and he wanted to enter. But they wouldn't let him aside because they still didn't trust him. But along came Barnabas. And Barnabas had confidence in Paul and his conversion was were genuine. He told Paul, if you come with me, you should follow me. Follow me just like Pete said in Sunday books. Follow me, you can get in to where the Christians are. Barnabas was a, a servant used of God to introduce Paul to that body of Christians. And because Barnabas put Paul in his basket, uh, we had the fantastic missionary of all time, Paul, who reached out for the message of Christ. You know, I've been in this business, this missionary business for a long time. And uh, many times I never really knew what God was coming and putting in my basket. I never realized for a long time. I, uh, a number of years ago, I was speaking in Keith Escane, Presbyterian Church. And just before the service, they introduced me to a Latino from Mexico, and his name was Rodrigo Barrera. And when they introduced me, uh, I said, well, my name is Fang, and Bruno del Monte. He said, Bruno del Monte, I was saved in one of your crusades 15 years ago. How nice to meet you here in, in Miami, Florida. God had pushed me in my basket. He said, I have now become a wakelet missionary, translating the word of God, into different languages in Guatemala. God in my basket. He said, not only that, but I have a daughter, 18 years old, and she is now a missionary with the Logos boat, which is still all around the world with the message of God. You know, during the evangelical crusades, when the invitation time comes and let is drawn out in the name of Jesus Christ for people to receive him. Uh, we see them come forward. We see children, teenagers, men and women. We see the algorithm. We never know who's placing in our basket. But we've seen hundreds of thousands going to become faithful leaders and elders of churches, pastors, missionaries, statesmen, soul winners. Uh, the, the strongest radio voice in Honduras is Acherebese, Evangelical Voice of Honduras. They called us in for a series of crusades, and I found out that the CEO, the director of this powerful radio station, told me I received Christ 30 years ago in one of the crusades, and it's so nice to have you in Honduras. And I'm glad to be a setup man for all your crusades here. You never know who God is pushing your basket. Well, God shares everything, He shares His blessings, His promises, His power, but that is one thing. That he does not share, and that's his glory. The glory is only for him. And that's why I tell you these stories to give him the glory. God forbid that I should take any glory. The glory belongs to him, only him. Glory makes men sick, glory destroys men. But when we finish the Crusades, first of all, we place the new believers in the sacred location of the world into the nail scarred hands of Christ. And Christ said, no one will take him out of our hands. Second, we give all the glory to God. I'm here today to give God the glory. We don't take any glory for ourselves. 
because he gets it all. Well, I never realized another person that God stretched in my hand. Back in 1959, in the city of Florida, Argentina, my friend Bill Fisher came down before me. Remember Bill Fisher? Uh, yes, yeah. I do. I, I, I like these stories. Trying to protect the man. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and he, so Bill had arrived in Argentina one year prior to me. He said, when I arrived, he said, there are three young men I want you to take, take into consideration and work with them. One of them was a name a man called Luis Palau. He's a young man. He was a, a teller in a bank. And so following Bill's suggestion, I invited Luis to go out and uh, have some crochets together. Back at that time, uh, that was 1959. Some of you remember, you could buy a Cadillac. Shane, you could buy a Cadillac for $3,000, brand new. <laughs> and back at that time, something would recall the Kaiser Fraser car. It didn't do well here. So they shipped everything, the whole plant down to Argentina. And then Argentina, they started selling at $8,000 when a Cadillac was 3000 here. Well, we didn't have money to buy a Kaiser Fraser. So I bought a small Italian motorcycle. And Luis would hop on back. He'd carry my big baritone horn and his briefcase full of servants. And off we go to a crusade. We traveled by small Italian motorcycle all over the, the country of Argentina for crusades. And one of the first ones we had was in the, in the city of, of Cordoba. And we adapted as our slogan, Acts 1A. You shall be my witness in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and unto the uttermost parts of the world, not knowing that God was going to send us there. Argentina was our Jerusalem. And our first crusade was in an area called Zepeju, a little neighborhood in, in Cordoba. Uh, we had to be in a tent. There was no church by. So we would have two meetings every night. We first with the kiddies, we invite them to come in, preach the gospel with them, and we tell them to go home and get mommy and daddy and bring them there. So the second service, service was for adults. Uh, during that time, 58 people received the Lord. And I recall it was sponsored by a church way across the city of Cordoba. And it was sponsored by a man whose garage was right across the street, or house was right across the street from that, that tent. Didn't have He started building the garage on his house. And I said, brother, why are you building a garage, you don't have a car. So I know I don't have a car, they're too expensive, but we need a place for these people to be. 58 brand new Christians, they're going to meet my garage. I said, really? Five years later, we returned to Cordoba and we had a meeting in the Coliseum with thousands of people coming out. That man who put up the garage came and he spoke to me after all the services and he said, guess what? We now have a real church building, and we're meeting in a church, and the church has grown. And he said, Guess what else? Oh, it's giving me a car to put in the garage. Yeah. <laughs> he was so happy. Well, Argentina was our Jerusalem, South America became our Judea. And uh, for those of you who have studied church history, you know that uh, there was a time in Spain where they had a great time of inquisition against the, the Christians, the born-again evangelical Christians. 
Well, in Colombia, South America, <clears throat> they had a time of inquisition. Mm -hmm. It wasn't two centuries ago, it was between 1949 and 1960. And the leader of the National Church there called his people in Bogota, Colombia. They had a meeting. And he said, this is rather upsetting. There are 200 evangelical churches in this country. We have to see that we've got to stop this. He said, you must kill a snake at the point of its head. In the next several years, 200 churches were burned to the ground, 200 evangelical pastors were murdered. But that didn't stop the Lord. <laughs> we talk about the blood of Christian martyrs. The church in Colombia is prospering right now. And I recall a, a crusade we had in the city of Medellin, one of the nicest cities of Colombia with eternal springtime. And during the during the crusade, things were going so well that the uh, the lead pastor called in the other pastors, and he said, "God is blessing." He said, "If the men in the team can spare another week, I think we should invite them." We had another week open. We we stayed stayed another week. He said, "We have to take advantage of this." He said, "As I look around, and see all your pastors. I know you have all been persecuted for preaching the gospel." And after, afterwards, one of the pastors, Dean Muamaya, took me aside and he said, yeah, I've suffered in preaching the gospel. He said, a gang of young men grabbed me. They took me out to the countryside. They were led by the local priest. And he said, they did something to me, which was a common method of inquisition. They tied my, my hands and my wrist around my back. And then they threw the other end of the rope around a tree them and they would pulled me up, and then let me drove and they catch me just before I hit the ground. He said, they did this to me for three hours. It's a method of the Spanish Inquisition called estrapado. But he made it. He said, many times you're hard for a jerk out of your armpits, no, he happened to me. We stayed in Medellin, and many, many more people were saved. In Colombia, we had the historical honor of having celebrating the first mass evangelical crusade in the city of Bogota, a city of eight million people, capital of, of Colombia. We began the crusade with march through the cities, the city streets there. And I was standing by one of the local pastors. And all of a sudden, I noticed he was coming down the sheep. And I said, What's the matter, brother? What's bothering? And he said, Oh, not, nothing matter. He said, these are cheers of happiness. He said, I never, never, never dreamed that in my capital city here in Bogota that I would see 10,000 people walking down the streets in parade, each with a Bible over his heart and singing together in unison, honored Christian soldiers. He said, this is a dream of my life. Fulfilled. Lord, if you want to take me home right now, I'm ready. God did a wonderful thing in Bogota. Hundreds of people took him into their hearts. Well, all Latin America became the next part of the Acts 1 8. And we rushed out, reached out to all the countries of Latin America. Mexico, our neighbor, is a little different than the other countries of Latin America. See, back in 1910, the Mexican government had a little revolution. 
and they were controlled by the church that you're aware of, but they declared themselves a secular state in 1910. As a result of that little revolution, um, priests are not allowed to wear their, their religious garb in the streets of Montreal. You're not allowed to have a, a meeting in a, in a neutral place like a stadium. You're not allowed to have a Christian radio service. You're not allowed to have TV Christian service. Uh, all the churches, technically, all churches of all denominations, technically belong to the state of Mexico. And this is borne out. They found out that there was one Catholic church in the city of Bogota that wasn't being used. So they said, this can't be. We don't want any church. They turned over to the evangelicals. We had a crusade in that former Catholic church there. That was kind of nice. <laughs> well, we were invited to conduct a crusade in the city of Monterrey, Mexico. Monterrey is known for its educational prominence. Uh, the best universities of Mexico are in the city of Monterrey. The executive committee got together months before the crusade and they said, where well, should we have it? Uh, the church is not big enough. Where shall we have them? And one of the leaders with a little more faith than the other said, why don't we go to Senor Duenas, the Commissioner of Public Events, and ask him if we could use the bull ring? So they, they said, well, we probably won't get it, but let's give it a try. So they went, the group of leaders, and they spoke to Senor Duenas. They explained to him what they wanted to do. They wanted permission to use the ballroom. He said, just a minute. He said, I have a little old man who works for me. He used to be a drunkard. He was out crossing at night. He had lots of women. All of a sudden, something happened to him. He's never been drunk. He comes to work on time. He stays home at night with his wife. He calls himself an evangelical. Is that what you men are? Precisely, they said. Senor Brenda said, the ring is yours. <laughs> That's what God does. <laughs> it was fantastic. We saw hundreds of people saved in the ring. Well, we fulfilled Acts 1 8 even more to the rest of the world. The rest of the Spanish world became our, our grounds for evangelism. Spain is a needy country. Spiritually speaking, in Spain, there are 5,000 towns without any evangelical witness. Uh, uh, the average church in Spain has 35 members. A, a mega church would be 70, 80 members. We were invited to conduct a crusade in Barcelona, Spain. And they weren't used to this type of thing. You know, normally, in all of our crusades, we have a we have a slogan, which I give out every night. And the slogan in Spanish is, cada uno traiga uno. That means everyone bring one. Well, I'm going to invite your unsaved people here. Everyone bring, cada uno traiga uno. I used that slogan in Barcelona. They weren't used to something like that. I used it time after time. Every night I ask, how many new people were here? No one, no one. About the fourth night, how many new people? One, people, one man raised his hand. Afterwards, I said, I think that's who invited you. He said, Oh, no one invited me. I was just passing by here. I heard the music. I came in. I received questions in my heart tonight. Spain is a needy country. Several months later, one of the leaders there in Barcelona 
came to our offices in Boca Raton, Florida. We spent seven hours together talking about Spain and the need of the gospel in Spain. And I'll never forget something. His name was Luis Rodriguez. I'll never forget something he told me. He said, 400 years ago, 400 years ago, we Spaniards sent to Latin America a lie. Now we want you to bring us the truth of the gospel. We have 5,000 towns without an evangelical witness. Please come. And we've gone to Spain time after time, after time, after time, after time. Well, Luis Palau is now in heaven. We worked together for eight years. Uh, we saw the gospel presented to uh, 11 million people in 63 countries. We saw 604 who received Christ as Savior, 604,000 rather. And God, God called Luis to heaven. But God has placed seven other Latin evangelists in my basket. My basket's full. <laughs> One of them, they, they come from Argentina, from Venezuela, Mexico, El Salvador, and Guatemala. One uh, is, his name is Luis Felipe Martinez, he's from Guatemala. His father was named Felipe, and he's named after his father. His father didn't wear shoes until he was 17. Hmm. His father would say to a local missionary, and he didn't know how to read it, but his father would memorize Bible verses. And he started preaching almost immediately out in the street corner. And he'd hold up the Bible, he couldn't read it, but he memorized verses. And he said, The Bible said so and so. And he would quote all these memory verses. <laughs> he finally started to learn, learn how to read, and he went to seminary. And uh, Felipe Martinez is one of the finest Guatemalan pastors in that country. In 48 years, he planted 55 churches. He has five children, all are in full-time ministry. And he, one of his sons, Luis Pedro Martinez, is, is with us. And I think I have never been in a meeting with him. I think Jack Orton. I was with Jack Orton for six years. We were never in an evangelistic meeting when someone wasn't saved. Same thing with Luis Pedro Martinez. Someone is always saved every time. Another man is from El Salvador. The same. His name is Dr. Carlos Rivas. And I want to tell you about him. Carlos Rivas was born one of 12 illegitimate children. And when he was growing up, he became, became a teenager. At that time, in El Salvador, they had a civil war, and the rebels were fighting against the army. And the army was after Carlos to get him to join, and the rebels wanted him to join. And Carlos' mother <clears throat> said, you have to leave this country. It's too dangerous for her to bring it here. So he went up to California. And there in California, in San Francisco, he got a job painting a corporate building at night. And at one time, he took his, his friend in. He said, I want, you, I want to show you around. He took him up to the 10th floor. And at night, you know, Carlos sat behind the president's desk and said, this is where I work. <laughs> he was a janitor, <laughs> but he had no money to put food on the table. But he used to go on Sunday afternoons to a certain plaza in the city of San Francisco, and there he saw, he saw a, a group that offered him a, a drink of Coca-Cola and some sandwiches. So every Sunday he would look for this group and he get his his snack, and then this group invited him to their church. 
they spoke Spanish. You know, the Spanish-speaking church. And he said, "Sure, brother, you give me food. I'll, I'll go there." So he started attending his church. After six weeks, Carlos Riva invited Christ to come into his heart. By this time, the war was over in El Salvador. His mother said, "Come back, Carlos." He went back. He was very smart, the smartest one in the family, smartest one of twelve German children. He went to the university. He got a PhD in psychology. He got his PhD in theology. He became the chaplain on campus at the University of, of El Salvador. And then a, a group came to him and they said, we want to start a church. Will you help us plant a church? So he said, sure. So they met in, first in the garage and then they graduated to a, a house like this. And then they graduated, they built their own church building. That was in the year 2001. Today, Carlos Rivas pastors a church of 15,000 people. God has blessed him. God has blessed him. We were, uh, Carlos and I were in special meetings in Peru. And uh, we were just talking one day and he said, yeah, the church, I thought we, we had a baptismal church uh, a couple of months ago. I said, well, they right how many that time? He said, well, 300. 300. Uh, they, they found the largest swimming pool in, in El Salvador, and, and Carlos has 12 associate pastors. That's a lot of church. So they baptized 300 people. And then he invited me when we were there for special meetings on, on Friday. He said, Now, tomorrow, we're going to have a wedding in church. I'd like you to participate. Fine. I arrived there Saturday afternoon. 32 couples were, were wedded that day. 32 <laughs> couples. Everyone wants Carlos to, to marry them. So he picks two, two days out of the year, six months apart. And if you want to be married by Carlos, you come that day. <laughs> I am eternally indebted to certain people for placing me in their bachelor. I am indebted to Howard Russell. We had a high school Bible club going back in Joliet, Illinois. He invited me to come out. I received Christ there. I'm indebted to Jack Wurzen. I sang in the Word of Life Code Church for six years. I saw Jack in every type of circumstance, good and bad. To this day, I don't know of a more model walk in the Lord than Jack. He was known as an evangelist, I think, in, in, for his personal walk. He's my He's my role model to this day. I am thankful for Bill Fisher. He put me in his basket. He's now in heaven. We worked together for many years. I'm thankful for Shane Kinnett. He put me in his basket a long time ago. My own grandson. Nice to be in your basket. <laughs> well, I'm asking you, what? who do you have in your basket this morning? I hope you have somebody in your basket. I hope you're not going around with an empty basket like this one. Who's in your basket? If you don't have one, you better find somebody to put in your basket. And you better take good care of them. Or take good care of her. And I thank you for placing me in your basket collectively, corporately in the church. And if you haven't done it, do it individually. I would appreciate it very, very much. Because we will share everlasting rewards. Amen. All these things I'm talking about. Your share, no, because have a, you all have a share of it because we're all in this together for one team. <clears throat> you will share in the hundreds of thousands that have been saved. You will share in Radio Impacto, which goes out in 300 
10 stations every year or we're trying to do stations. You're not sharing all of this. I want to tell you something which kind of blows my mind. The story is, is told of a horse pull, a contest in Alaska. One horse pulled 9,000 pounds. Another horse pulled 18, eight pulled. First horse, 9,000 pounds. Second horse pulled 8,000 pounds. Together, when they were chained together, you would expect them to pull 17,000 because nine and eight is 17. Not so. When chained together, this horse team pulled 30,000 pounds, almost twice the amount. And this is the principle called synergy. Synergy is a nice word. And synergy is, is means this. Let me read it. By definition, synergism is the simultaneous action of separate agents working together, and they have a greater total effect than the sum of their individual efforts. More can be done, can be done in team effort than than as, as we work individually. So I encourage all of you to work together as a team, this church. Work together as a team with us and pull it together. With our baskets loaded, we can reach countless and countless people for the Lord Jesus Christ. And one day, we'll have the honor of presenting all of our basket cases before the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I have so many friends in front there. My mother and my father are there. So many friends of Bill Fazek are there. Jack Wilson is there. Bob Russell is there. My mentors. If you had been to, been to heathen lands where weary souls stretch out their hands to plead, yet no one understands, would you go back? Would you? If you had seen the women bear their heavy loads with none to share, had heard them weep with none to care, would you go back? Would you? If you had seen the glorious sight when heathen people in their night were brought from darkness into light, would you go back? Would you? Yet still they wait, for we reach long. They've waited some so very long. When shall despair return to song? Would you go back? Would you? That's why I've gone back many, many, many times. The harvest there is fantastic in Latin America. So I'm here this morning to say, Mijitrasis. A thousand thanks for dropping my basket into the places where you will never be. Many thanks. Peter, Peter, Peter. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Bruce. All morning, I've been, been the Lord has been impressing upon my heart uh, the use of our time, the focus of our energies, our heart, and the things that. Um, come out of my life. I had, a, the, I guess, the most significant beginning for me was years ago when I I was a Christian and I was involved in the church, but I didn't have that. The life becomes, uh, I said, you used the term boring. I, it just becomes mundane. And uh, I was thinking uh, then, I said, I really, really need a purpose. I really want God's purpose in my life. And uh, Begun to began to pursue him and made that a priority in my life. I, I remember 
listening to um, a guy on the radio by the name of John Jess. I don't know if you've heard of yeah. John Jess. And uh, he had a program called Chapel of the Air, and I used to listen to him. This was up at the college. And um, I would, he, he, I had been thinking about, you know, what am I going to do in my life and stuff in Manhattan. He uh, was preaching and he said that the, the Lord says, you know, if I'm going to do my will, he'll know of it, know what it is. Hmm. And uh, I almost, I was driving a Volkswagen bus, almost slammed on brakes and I said, that just, I don't, I don't believe that because I've been asking the Lord for a long time, what is it that I, he wants me to do? I, I even told him that I'm willing to become a missionary to Eskimos. I was trying to think of the very worst thing possible that he called me to do, and that was it. <laughs> but uh, at that point, when I doubted what, what John was saying, uh, it was like the Lord said, well, what is it that you're not doing now that you know I want you to do? And I realized then that I really wasn't spending any time with him, that I was busy doing a lot of other stuff. And so I uh, committed my life then again to really seeking to put the Lord in my life every day, beginning with him. And it took a while for it to work in because at first I'd get up early to try to study and I'd fall asleep on my knees and that didn't work out. I was too tired, too sleepy. So then I had to make the radical decision, which sounds funny, but it was a radical decision for me. And that is to go to bed early, like nine o'clock, because I don't normally do that. 11 o'clock and I'm wide awake and then go to a movie or do something. And so I started going to bed early, started to get up early. And spend time with the Lord. That's really the that what that is the beginning of what really began to put purpose and direction in my life uh, with the Lord was to take that that seriously and begin every day focusing on Him and asking Him uh, what does He want me to do and how can I pursue Him. That's part of what we're talking about when we talk about Jesus gives the invitation, follow me. And he told the disciples, follow me. He didn't, didn't say take this course or go to this school, but follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that really is important. So I, I, this, I'm going to have a word of prayer, but if the, Lord is, if, if the Lord is speaking to your heart and you need to use your time, put purpose in your life, you have a reason for living, you have a purpose. I mean, that's really everything matters around that. And so I just encourage you to make that really a pursuit in your life. Follow the Lord Jesus and let him, we're talking about the basket, put people in your basket. Uh, and there are people there. And most of those examples that I know of that you use in scripture, I don't know that they really realized what was in their basket when it happened. Great things come about, but you don't know about them. The details until later. Yeah. But God is the one that gets the glory. And that's what we want. So let me just close the prayer and then you can come and give us all. But Father, we do thank you for Brother Bruce and for the challenge he's given to us and for the example. We're dealing, dealing with real life, real people, and all of us are emotional mm -hmm. beings, and all of us want to, to, to have a, a significant part of your kingdom, and yet we. If we seek that, we I don't think we find it. I think we find it as we surrender to you and 
and ask you to lead us where you want us to go and what do you want us to do. We know some things like spending time with the scriptures, uh, being faithful to go to church, uh, to be faithful to uh, be vocal about our relationship with you and share those things. But there are a lot of things that we don't preach about that people see that could also help to populate the baskets and maybe make people ask questions later. So help us to be submissive to you and surrender to you and obedient to you and ask that you would have first place in our lives. We can't do it. We ask you to do it. That was the request of Paul in Galatians that he said he's crucified with Christ and yellow that he lives. In other words, both he and we are active in our participation. So help us to do that. Give us hearts that are open and hearts that are desiring and willing to follow you and to love you and to serve you. It costs whatever it may. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay.